Geograve, and good evening. I'm Siobhan Garrigan, and you're very welcome to The Leap of Faith. As the violence continues in Ukraine, last week we considered various religious responses to it. This week, we look in depth at the experience of being a refugee due to war. Also, even as war rages, Hollywood continues and we'll be delving into the portrait of the televangelist Tammy Faye, for which Jessica Chastain won an Oscar this week, with Professor David Shepard. But first, I'm delighted to be joined on the line from Cambridge, England, by the Afghan poet, writer and scholar Pawana Fayez. Pawana, you're very welcome to The Leap of Faith. Oh, thank you. I'm so grateful to be here. Pawana, you're collection of poetry uh, from Carcarnet mm-hmm. Press, 40 Names, is in four parts, all of which are about different sorts of women, women you know, women of lore, women you heard about. Um, and they're also, if I understand correctly, it's a bit like trying to compress an oral tradition into a, a single page. <laughs> you know, it's hard enough to <laughs> take what comes in in the form of an oral tradition, and write it. But to do so in the form of poetry is very um, confining. Why Why did you choose poetry as a medium for this, given how hard it is? <laughs> I think it would take me another 30 years to figure that, that out, like why poetry, right? Mm. But I think I, what, you know, that my mom is illiterate. She has never been to school. So I think for me, the stories were received in, a, in an oral sense, right? The stories were narrated from one woman to another. And the generation before my mother, they were never educated either. So the stories had to pass down in a very oral manner. So when it, it came to me, I think I tried to capture that, the poetics of the story in itself, how my mother told me. That was poetic in itself, right? In Persian, when she would tell me something, she would try to rhyme certain aspect of the, the the expression in itself. So I think I saw poetry in that storytelling that my mother really used. So I think it's really not distinct. It's not really different from the stories that my mother told. I think I just happened to write it in, in the form of poetry that, that's in English. You mentioned your mother and her not being literate. And your mother comes across as such a wonderful figure in, in the collection. Is literacy an issue in your relationship? Because you are obviously highly literate. I think there is something that always draws me very in a very, very beautiful relationship with my mother. It's wisdom. It's the way she thinks about the world and she thinks about her relationship with with, with everything surrounding her, right? There is this, this word we use in Persian, which is hikmat, which, you know, literally in a very close meaning would be wisdom. And that that really conveys a person's experience and observation, the, the, the real life lessons that one observes closely and pass down that knowledge to those that they care. And my mother's sense of... Uh, literacy and knowledge really comes from that. You mentioned being refugees and in the wake of the fall of the Soviet Union, your parents had to flee Afghanistan and you were a small child. Do you relate to the refugees now fleeing Ukraine? Maybe 
imagining the stories you know they have inside them but cannot yet speak. Um, how do you relate to uh, current refugees? Um, I think, I mean, war is war, right? And displacement in any form means the same thing, right? You leave home, you leave the people you love behind. You just all of a sudden in a few hours time, you're a completely different land. You're trying to adopt a new culture. As a kid, I think everything is being taken care of by the parents and the elders. But, you know, but you're also deep down, you know, psychologically, you, you people do go through a lot of hard time and readjustment. And because I haven't seen any other world other than being refugee, I don't know what other lives feel like, right? If, if I have a friend who, you know, talks about about the mountain that they have been going throughout their childhood with their parents and they can still visit, I don't have a place like that. I, it, just, it, mm-hmm. it just gives me a sense of not having that memory. I don't have any memory that is in connection to one place that I visited since my childhood. And, and being a refugee means disconnecting with that life and not having the, not being able to go back to that. I do understand the status, the, the situation of refugees coming out of Ukraine, Syria, Afghanistan, and so many other places. And, it, and, and it's going to be very similar to kind of experiences I had in a sense of, you know, the mental difficulties, the, the, the psychological effects it's going to have on individuals. But, you know, the world is so much more open to refugees these days. And I hope that people really pay attention to how to welcome them, how to make it possible for refugee kids to go to school and to offer them classes to learn the language and to easily, you know, go into a new culture. Does it annoy you that the European borders seem to be so open for Ukrainian refugees but weren't for Afghan and Syrian ones? Well, it's, it does. I mean, any human with a very critical mind would question that. The, the, the evacuation in Afghanistan took place within two weeks and, and the countries came up with very limited number of people being resettled in Europe. And that was heartbreaking because, you know, it's not just, you know, 50,000 of people who are displaced. A lot of people are going to be displaced, right, from Afghanistan. And we need more than those numbers. Numbers shouldn't be limited here. So I think that's what one thing that makes me question. I mean, obviously, it's it's a matter of, you know, a country being in Europe and a country being in, in Central Asia. That's a whole different thing. But when it comes to human suffering and refugee matters, I don't think there should be numbers. There should be a way to help them. So definitely does make me question things. And, I, and as a matter of fact, as we speak, a lot of Afghans are still in the third country waiting for their visas to come through, waiting for some sort of person to give them a hint what's next for them. Yeah. It's interesting that um, when you talk about uh, the refugee crises, uh, that you focus on the child's point of view, because, of course, you were you were a refugee child. And I'm also struck about you talking about your mother in terms of how she felt her illiteracy hurt her and uh, restrained her in her life. Mm -hmm. And I wonder what, if anything, you think the world can do to respond to the Taliban's refusal to allow women to be educated in modern-day Afghanistan? Well, it's... uh... It's one thing 
that I think any Afghan coming from Afghanistan and knowing how the Taliban regime looks like would confidently say that they are never going to fully approve of women's education. And that should be known to the world because they never promised to let girls go to school, right? This is this is something that was never negotiated and never be, was agreed upon anything, any sort of conversation. So I think as an Afghan, we, we knew that that was happening. That was our fear. The two weeks of evacuation, everything seemed to, you know, compress in few things that people fear the most around the world. But Afghans themselves, they knew it, that that was the, that was the end of women's education. So even if they're going to open up schools for girls to go to school, to, to be able to become educated, it's going to be a very limited sort of education mainly religious studies, mainly the Quranic learning, just by memorizing verses of the Quran. So it's never going to be the kind of education that, for example, I'm used to or any other Afghan women studying during this 20 years of American occupation could have studied in a different, a private school. So I think we are aware of that. So it breaks my heart that the girls cannot go to school anymore because I was one of the school, one of those girls with that black dress and white scarf going to school every day. And I remember after the spring, after the first day of spring, the second day, we would just go to school after three months of holiday. And we were overjoyed by seeing our friends and, and discussing things and, and bringing food and sharing because the spring had just started. And just like the, the the newly bloomed flowers, we would be so joyful. And to to learn that schools are not going to open for you, that just breaks my heart and any any anyone's heart in the world knowing that this is happening. So I really don't know how the world is going to respond, but this is something that they have to, and they have to consider this is a very important issue. Because if you can control women's education, you and I, you're gonna suppress the whole nation in a country. We we have experienced that in Afghanistan. It has happened before. So I hope that the world would look at it not as a matter of politics or dealing with the east or west, you know, kind of topic, but something that's the basis of human rights to education. I think that's a very important step for the world to take and to make sure that Afghan women in Afghanistan, also Afghan men in Afghanistan, get the best education they can, because that's going to determine the future of the country. Pawana, later this month, you'll be speaking at the Cambridge Literary Festival about the volume of short stories, which is called My Pen is the Wing of a Bird, New Fiction by Afghan Women. And I believe you've translated five of the stories in that volume into English out of Dari, the Afghan dialect of Farsi or Persian. This is an extraordinary opportunity to hear voices of people that we don't normally hear. And as you were just saying, voices that some might determine that we should not hear. What was it like being involved in that project? It's been a great experience. And, uh, you know, I'm I'm one of those Afghan scholars who live between Kabul and Cambridge. And my, my family lived in Kabul. 
and uh, uh, up to you know the, the last October when they had to be evacuated. So I I used to go home visit home every summer and stay there for a month or two in Kabul with my family and really experience the city and the chaos that was there and the beauty and everything. And and since 2018, I was told by my family not to visit the country because things were looking not very good for women. So I just couldn't visit home and that broke my heart and I, I missed family, I missed home, I missed Kabul. And, and I got an email from Lucy Hanna, the director of um, Untold, uh, and and um, and she asked me if I could be one of the translator, one of the translators for uh, fiction coming uh, from Afghanistan. And without even thinking, I said yes to it because I knew what it meant to work with uh, Afghan writers. I've I have no one, and I know that uh, Afghan women they they write in a very authentic voice in a, in a, from real experiences. So I, I believed in a project and in a, in a, in a work as such. So, and I, part of me wanted to go to Kabul city through the stories because they were written in Persian. And, and by reading that those stories in Persian, I could sense myself entering the, the city. And, um, and I just loved it. And I, really took part in this project with all my heart and I translated the stories um, as if I could be the storyteller and that was the joy of it. So, Pawana, prayer plays a strong role in your own poetry. In Two Gravestones, it was while praying at your grandmother's grave that you felt her reunion with her estranged husband in death. And in The Caller and the Constellation, the poet Nadia prayed in poetry. What is prayer to you at this point in your life? Is it poetry itself? Um, I think it is. I think all those things that you cannot vocalise in the very first instance, I think that's prayer. And and for me, poetry has been that way for a long time. All the silent thoughts and, and silent thinking, whether it's what is triggered by something or it's just, you know, an event in itself happening in my mind. I think it has been that way for a long time. I, I always had it as a child, I think, this inner conversation, but also it's a kind of, you know, imploring or requesting or asking something deep down. So, I, I yeah, I think I, I haven't seen any, you know, disconnection from, you know, those two things. They're not, never disconnected for me, poetry and prayer. Pawana Fayaz, thank you very much for joining us tonight on The Leap of Faith. All pleasure is mine. Thank you thank for you. having me. My Pen is the Wing of a Bird by Afghan Women is published by McElhose Press. Untold Narrative CIC works with writers marginalised in society by community or conflict. Earlier this week, Jessica Chastain won the Oscar for her role in The Eyes of Tammy Faye. Tammy Faye went from televangelist to gay icon. As young warriors for Christianity, Tammy and her husband Jim Baker set out to bring new energy to a staid and punitive religion. Now God has a voice in this fight. 
Amen. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Who's he fighting? A liberal agenda. Feminist agenda. Homosexual agenda. It's mm. time for a reversal of these trends. Mm. The only hopes in, in saving America. Get back to the good old days. Mm. Mm. <laughs> well, I love our country, but America is for them too. <laughs> well, oh, Tam, would, mm. would you mind getting me another coat? Jim, let your wife speak. Debate. I think it gets us all back to unity. Oh, I don't want to debate you, Jerry. I love you. I love all of you guys. Re Re Reverend Falwell. Yeah. We love you too, Tammy Faye. <laughs> yes, we just do. God is my witness. I made a pledge to continue to expose the sins in this country. The Bible explicitly forbids homosexuality. There's no gray area. Mm, well, you know, I, I, I don't think of them as homosexuals. I just think of them as other human beings that I love. You know, we're all just people made out of the same old dirt. And God didn't make any junk. <laughs> Dr. David Shepard, you're very welcome to The Leap of Faith. Thanks very much. Great to be here. Who was Tammy Faye? Tammy Faye was for a for a, a period of time a kind of global icon um that said maybe not so many folk um in this country may have known of her but uh, she was the wife of a pastor but uh, but a ministry leader in her own right in the 80s and 90s and and uh and this film is all about their relationship the rise and demise of their relationship and the rise and demise in a sense of their ministry um uh, on, on a world stage, especially on an American stage. And their ministry was mostly through television and a television show that eventually landed the big time with CBS. Yeah, it, it began and the film talks, uh, you know, talks about their beginnings, um, their beginnings uh, as students at a Bible college. They come, they meet. Um, but already at that point, he, Jim Baker, her husband, has an appetite for... Um, for something bigger, for something more. And um, that more, that bigger turns out to be television. Uh, and television was kind of revolutionizing <coughs> ministry and the reach of ministry in America in the 80s, you know, especially the, the 70s and 80s um, with, with big personalities and big shows. Um, Pat Robertson um, was one of the, was one of the, the key figures and and Jim and Tammy Faye uh, find their way into television ministry um, through Pat Robertson and, and his uh, CBN, his broadcasting network. Because inevitably they're telling one story, uh, perhaps we don't get the picture of American Christianity that we would need. Are you worried that maybe people will deduce from this film, oh my goodness, that's what Christianity is? Yeah, I, I, I think it's, you know, it's a particular species of Christianity, of American Christianity, um, and it was of its moment. I mean, you know, theologically, its underpinnings are a kind of, well, what they often call a kind of prosperity gospel. You know, a gospel which says that uh, God wants us to be wealthy and well, all of us, and if we're not, then it's because we don't have enough faith. Another scene in the film that raises an early, another early warning sign about the uh, the overly close relationship with uh, making money is Tammy's mother, who's played uh, brilliantly, I thought, by Cherry Jones. 
And she says, I don't see what serving the Lord has to do with making money. It's a it's a balance, isn't it? Where where does the line where 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 does the line come between you know, you need to get paid for what you do and churches need money to do their work. But we get the feeling something was wrong in the relationship with money from yeah. the start here. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's a real worry and it's a worry which is highlighted in the film when ministry um, becomes more about money than it does, uh, you know, than it, it is about people. And, and, and fairly quickly, it becomes clear that that's the case um, for Jim. Um, now for Tammy Faye, the film, you know, is kind of playing with this idea. I, I think trying to be slightly ambiguous about how much she knows about the kind of, f- frankly, fraud which was going on for which he was later convicted and how much she, she doesn't want to know. Um, so I think that, that, that that's that's the reality. Um, but I think there are big issues. You <clears throat> brought out for us the distinction uh, that the film makes between Jim's fraudulent relationship with uh, with donations and Tammy's supposed naivety about all of that side of things. And um, the film has been quite widely criticised for taking that approach, as was the documentary uh, that RuPaul made about her, on which this film was based. But there's another distinction in the film, isn't there? And that's between... Jim and Tammy's really radically different views of homosexuality and how uh, people in Christian ministry should approach um, real live gay people in this era, real live gay people dying of AIDS, um, but also, you know, classic Christian teaching, as Jim would see it, was not shared by Tammy. Her approach was, God don't make no junk. Yeah. Uh, and she says that in a in a in a in a very interesting scene where where she's engaging with she's you know around a table with um, some of some of the well the leading uh, American televangelists um, w- with whom Jim is trying to ingratiate himself. This is sort of near enough the beginning of of the ministry, and already at that point it's clear uh, the difference of opinion between Jim and Tammy Faye. And um, and he feeling like he very much needs to sort of say the right things in order to get in with, especially somebody like Jerry Falwell, um, leader of the moral majority and a and a kind of political icon for for very you know conservative Christianity uh, in the eighties and nineties. And it, there are there are a few moments in the film where that becomes very clear. But there's a there's a particular scene, and it's a famous scene. In a sense, and and it's you know c- committed to television history in a way, um, and it's represented in the film, and that is the moment where, the moment where Tammy Faye interviews a openly gay pastor um, who who has AIDS, and um, it's a it's 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 really it's a moving moment within the film. I think it's it's probably more moving. The moment itself was more moving than than how it's portrayed in the film, but it's still quite a moving moment within the film. And it's quite clear that Tammy Faye, and she would go on to be quite involved with LGBTQ communities um, in the later part of her, her life. It's quite clear that she had a different opinion from, from her husband, and especially from those who her husband was trying to get in with. Um, and, and that's 
that's a significant, and I think that's part of the reason why the documentary was made actually in the first place and part of the reason actually why the film was made. I mean, Tammy Faye was, she was a, she was, she was a queer icon. You know, she was, but she wasn't just a queer icon. She was an ally. And that comes through, I think that comes through quite clearly in the film. Why do you think that homosexuality, of all the topics, is this fault line in Christian communities? And and you could say it's even become worse since the 80s and 90s. And certainly with the change in the law in Florida uh, this month, we're reminded of... um, yeah, the fault line that this represents between what you described as conservative, what others would then maybe see as quote-unquote progressive, liberal, however you name it, we know, we know there are you know profound differences within, within Christian understanding of sexuality. I think, I, I think it's probably because sexuality is so deeply bound up with our sense of identity. I, I, think, that, I think that's why. It's such a it's such a fault line. Um, so you know who we are as people. It's very difficult. I mean, we are much more than our sex, much more than our gender, much more than our sexual orientation, and yet there is something you know deeply personal about this. And so I think it becomes very difficult. I think it becomes very difficult, for instance, for um, conservatives, evangelicals who who feel strongly about this issue to, to, to kind of get some perspective on it. In other words, to, to be able to say even, so for instance, uh, you know, conservatives in the 70s and 80s, um, I think it was very difficult for them to be able to say, um, we affirm, we affirm you because, and, and I think there was, it was quite clear, Tammy Faye articulates this notion that, that, that even though she might be, and it's quite interesting to think about how deep her theology was. I'm not sure it was very deep because, but she understood, she understood that, that in fact, we need to love, we need to love people who are different from us, even if, and this is what I think her husband and and maybe somebody like Jerry Falwell found difficult, even if you can't agree necessarily with the, with how they articulate their identity. I, I think that's it, it's just difficult in, in issues of sexuality and, and, and that's probably why. You know? David Shepherd, Associate Professor of Hebrew Bible at Trinity College Dublin. Thank you very much for joining us this evening on The Leap of Faith. Thanks very much. And that's it for this week. Thank you for listening and please join us again this time next Friday night. The Leap of Faith was presented by Siobhan Garrigan. Sound supervision was by Damien Chanel. Research was by Sinead Kennedy and the broadcast coordinator was Jarlath Holland. The producer is Sheila O'Callaghan. And remember, you can always email the programme at faith at rte.ie.